will be in uh, Isaiah 36 and 37. And um, just a couple of things real quick before we get started this morning. First of all, um, love for you to keep uh, two of our elder families in prayer, the Gomez's and the Indikes. Uh, when we were together um, at our uh, elder retreat this last year, we just encouraged us to be people who, um, as leaders, who don't give in to the workaholic culture that we have and who actually learn how to rest well in the fact that God is the Savior of the world and we are not. We're his servants, right? And so we want to intentionally take time to rest and to play as elders uh, and to recreate. And so two of them are doing that this weekend. They're out in the mountains somewhere, and this is actually a holy act, that they would take time to enjoy their families and enjoy creation and enjoy a God who is good, who gives us every good gift richly to enjoy. So they are worshiping in a different way um, as they are taking some time away to rest. So please be in prayer for the Indikes and the Gomez's this weekend. And I hope that um, you're encouraged to follow that same example to consider how you might rest and how you might remember in your rest that Jesus is our rest. When we enter into him, he's the savior of the world. He's the workman who never stops working. He doesn't go to sleep. He works 24-7 around the clock, upholding the universe by the word of his power, and we can rest in that. Okay, so please be in prayer for them. Also, um, uh, I don't know if we have the slide up for it, but we've been talking about our um, upcoming equipping series on the gospel and mental health. And uh, so our first um, session is coming up in just a little over a month, February 20th. Can you put that slide up real quick? February 20th, we do have registration for this. These are the four, um, the four sessions. So there's the first one that's coming up February 20th is the biology of the brain. Um, and we're planning to introduce this series with that first one, with the first, uh, the first few minutes by one of our elders uh, discussing a biblical theology of mental health so that you can understand and we can together how mental health issues are part of the corruption of the fall. And so we in, uh, we're not doing this just for the sake of this knowledge. We have asked all of you to join us together in loving our neighbor for the good of our city because Jesus has commanded us to love our neighbor. And in our city, many of our neighbors that we're interacting with are folks who struggle in this area. We're interacting with foster care, with homelessness, with many other things, and, and so we, we find this cropping up. How do we bring the good news of the gospel to this, uh, uh, to this area and this neighborhood and, and do so in such a way that is, is understanding where, where we are and understanding our culture? So that's part of this right here. So, I really encourage you to, to go ahead and register. We've actually suspended all of our all of our missional communities meet in some shape or form um, on Wednesday nights. So we've suspended all of those meetings for that night so that all of our, our people can go and be a part of this equipping. There is a registration involved. There's gonna be food, there's gonna be childcare. We do ask for a, sm uh, for a small donation to help cover the, uh, the expense of the food. Um, in the childcare, but we also have uh, discount codes for you to use instead if you need to. Um, and so those are going to be in your email where when you enter them in, you can get half off or free 
for uh, you know to attend this. So we don't want the cost to be a, a deterrent, but at the same time, we do have some um, brothers and sisters that we partner with in Gary that are hoping to attend as well, and so we're going to try to cover that cost that way. So the Gospel of Mental Health, please go ahead and register for that as soon as you can. Where is that going to be? So, oh, okay, that's where you've already told us. Yeah, no. Um, so right up the road here, about a block actually, on the corner of Windermere and Littleton Boulevard, is First Presbyterian Church's building. And they've actually given that building to us for free um, be, uh, to use. They're making it key for us. They're being very kind and hospitable with their with their space. So, um, so we're going to be able to use that um, for that Wednesday night uh, and all of them this year. Um, so that's why they're making it key for us. And they're probably, they're probably going to be sending some of their, their their folks as well. We're partnering with several other churches in the area for many of our things, um, and. And because we all sort of like we all are, you know, we've got our church, our local church body, but we believe in the greater body of Christ that also populates this area. And is all, many of them are intentionally on a mission to love God and love their neighbors. So uh, we're excited to be able to to um, <laughs> take advantage of the way they're loving us by giving their space. So, so good, good question, Mom. All right. So Isaiah, um, Isaiah chapter thirty-six. And if you can just go ahead and flip over there, we're going to be kind of sitting in here. And I'm, I'm, uh, we've got two whole chapters here, and up to this point, um, up to this point, uh, uh, a lot of what we've been in has not been narrative. So now, all of a sudden, like a lot of it has been uh, poetic, it's been prophetic, uh, it's used lots of metaphor and picturesque speech. And when you when you see it. You just have to kind of think about the editorial process that took place, right? Where people are uh, writing, writing all of these, and then someone comes together and puts these all together in a book, and it's not hodgepodge um, the way they put it together in, a, in the book. It's a piece of literature, and so there's design and there's flow. So it makes you ask the question: Why then, if, if so much of it up till now has been all of this? Uh, all of this, um, you know, poetic and prophetic literature. Why are we getting a narrative now? So now we have a narrative. We have a story. Why is that there? So we're going to kind of work on, on that a little bit. And if you remember, a lot of if if, if you look back on on so much of what we've been talking about in Isaiah, there's this massive me uh, uh, message of judgment and hope, judgment and hope, where the the nation of Israel is sitting right in the middle of of the span of several kings, and Isaiah is is a prophet who is prophesying during the time of several of the reigns of, of these kings. And it's not a great time for the nation of Israel. Israel has kind of had its, uh, its golden age underneath, starting with King David, the first true king, who God gives all these promises to about his line being the one where the true and greatest king will come through. And then after that, they're just... Be, uh, becomes uh, idolatry and, and worship and adopting the practices of the surrounding nations. And so I think what there's several things that we learn as, as Isaiah is coming into this. One of the, he did, uh, you find in Isaiah 6, we referenced this several times, right? But Isaiah 6 presents the death of one of the godly kings, the king Uzziah. Um, and and it's as if as a prophet, right? Like here's Uzziah, a king who for the most part has tried to honor God um, and tried to lead Israel to be a distinct nation among all the pagan nations that worship their local gods and were, you know, very uh, um, manipulative in, in the way that they viewed their gods. Um, and and 
Uzziah has tried to lead them well in worship and in following God and in being a distinct nation, um, and he dies. And here's Isaiah, this prophet, who I believe is probably fairly young at, the, at this point um, in, in history. And so that passage, Isaiah 6, starts off with, in the year that Uzziah died, which is basically, if you put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah, it's like, our, our leader is gone. Uh, and, and he's looking at, um, he's looking at this, this circumstance where the, the, the well-being of the nation is dependent on it following God. This flourishing is, is directly connected to its walking with God. And Uzziah is gone. And so you have this juxtaposition of temporal reality. Here's the life and reign of one guy, Uzziah, with a, a cosmic reality that runs parallel alongside but over top of temporal realities, right? Because what happens is, in the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and, 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 and his, the train of his robe filled the temple. Like, for a minute, God kind of peels back the curtain, so to speak, right? And so, uh, to show him what's actually going on that's transcending his temporal realities. So keep this in mind. When it comes to the nature of deep reality, humanity suffers with nearsightedness and long-term memory loss. Short-term memory takes over, and temporal realities obscure God's cosmic work and make for us long-term faith of long-term faithful faithfulness mentality difficult. Does that make sense? We we know we're called to faithfulness over the long haul, but sometimes our our short-term memory is of Uzziah is dead. What are we going to do? Instead of having that long-term memory that says God is high and lifted up on His throne. And he is not bound by the lifespan of one godly king. Okay? So, our short-term memory sometimes causes a long-term faithfulness mentality to be difficult. And though God is working a massive cosmic restoration, we see his promises from Genesis chapter 3, right? Like, there is brokenness, but I'm going to rescue this. And we see the end, too, Jesus who is sitting on this throne and every nation, tribe, and tongue are worshiping him. Even though we have, we have this story of God's massive cosmic restoration, sometimes God actually needs to break in in a sort of microcosm event, which illustrates what he's doing across the whole. Thereby, he uses temporal realities to again pull back the curtain for us. That's what he does over and over and over again. We see it over and over and over again in the scriptures. The Exodus event was one of those events. If God had never accomplished the rescue of Israel through the Exodus event, it would, have, it would not have made the fact that he was going to accomplish the restoration of the world through Jesus not real. But he gave them the Exodus event as a microcosm of the bigger one to help them see that he is indeed at work all the time. 
And so they, uh, the Israelites and we, tend to flatten circumstances down to the here and now and reduce being God's people to a temporal reality. And I would say that when we reduce being God's people merely to just this temporal reality, what we wind up doing is misusing our temporal realities. Isaiah is calling them and us back to a whole cosmic reality. When the curtain is pulled back, we see some true worship based on who God is and what he has done emerge for a minute in the history of Israel. And hopefully it will encourage us to be a people of the larger reality who have a long-term faithfulness view. And so that's why the big idea today is the way to remain faithful now is to look back and to look forward. So we have this story here in Isaiah 36 and 37, and that's what I believe we're getting at today. The way to remain faithful now is to look back and look forward. So what's behind this story? Um, I did a little bit of uh, research on the Assyrian kingdom, and you have this king, right, who is, who is uh, who, who's coming in right about the same time as Hezekiah, and his name is Sennacherib. We, um, we read about him a little bit ago. He's, he's the threat of Assyria, and it's really interesting. If you Google Sennacherib, you'll find that in 1920, there was a um, stone discovered by archaeologists that they call the Sennacherib Prism. It is uh, a, uh, it's kind of a hexagon-shaped, long, it almost reminds you of, um, uh, what is Hammer, uh, the Rosetta Stone? Kind of reminds you of that. It's one of those sort of like, wow, like this is, this is, this, and it's not just, um, it's not just this uh, minor archaeological find. What it actually is, is Sennacherib's uh, personal diary of accomplishments. And so you can imagine, as, um, as a, a, a tyrannical king, that it was full of how wise and just he is as a king. Like he wrote this himself on this stone, right? Or probably had it written, but he was the author of it, right? And so what kind of legacy does he want to leave? He wants people to remember how awesome he is. And so he boasts about how he is the greatest, how he is the best, how he is the strongest, how he is the wisest. And in that list of things, he actually mentions this event. Isaiah 36 and 37, what he had done, and now, now he may be inflating the numbers because tyrants tend to do that, but he said that he came in and decimated 46 of, of Judah's towns, 46 of them. Now, I don't know if 46 is the actual number that he decimated, but I will say this, that from other archaeological finds, you have a mention of, see in this verse first, 36 verse 1, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So I would tend to think that his boast actually isn't quite hyperbole. It is probably pretty accurate. He took 46 of his fortified cities. Now, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, who is like his commander representative, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. Now let me tell you about how, how full this statement is. Okay, because you can go to Lachish, or the site of Lachish right now, and see a massive mound of tons, dozens of tons of dirt that the Assyrian army mounded up against Lachish so that they could roll their siege works up this mound and into the city. And they, and they discovered 
a mass grave of 1,500 people that were murdered by the Assyrian king, Sennacherib. He had uh, a, an army of 200,000 that was just sweeping through these areas and decimating all of these cities and towns. And so, Hezekiah, the righteous king, who believes that God is the ruler, had stopped paying tribute to this guy. How do you think that went over? So, Sennacherib has it out for Hezekiah. And Sennacherib's boast says, we had him pinned up in his royal city like a bird. Hezekiah, in preparation for the, the coming tide, had fortified the city walls. He had even started this whole, um, this whole project to divert the water flow because he knew that that would be important if, if they were uh, placed under siege. And under siege they were placed. And all I can think of, uh, this is the image. I was trying to put myself into their shoes because um, though we do have violence in our society, the concept of a horde uh, who are going to flay, literally flay you alive and put you in a mass grave is pretty far off for most of us in our culture. Um, and this is the closest thing that came to mind. Does anybody, anybody know what this is? <laughs> Or Helms. Helms Anyone seen this? <laughs> Helms Deep, right? Where, where here you have, you know, the horde wasn't, the horde wasn't, uh, you know, this doesn't show up on the screen, does it? Right? Like these guys are not the horde. These are the beautiful elves with all their shiny armor. That's not the. This is the horde back here. And as they're standing there, you get a little bit with the visuals, right? And the, and the way that, that, that Jackson has done the cinematography, you get a little bit of a terror. Because they're trying to find every able-bodied man. They're even using the little boys. And they're putting them up on, on the wall. And they're looking out. And here is this mass of flesh that is evil and full of weapons. And they're not just going to come and hurt you. They're going to come, they are inspiring terror because they, they are going to, like, they're, they're going to flee you alive, right? So, you can imagine yourself being in this wall, inside this city, and looking out at the, at the Sennacherib, at Sennacherib and his army of 200,000 out there, outside your wall, and it just being sheer terror. And that's kind of the scene that we fall into right now. So here is our narrative flow, which is really cool when you think about it. Um, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but, uh, but here's, how, here's how the story goes. There's an irony of words versus actions that I think that the writer of, of Isaiah here is trying to, to actually emphasize and bring out. You have Action and word, action and word, okay? Assyria's actions lead to Assyria's haughty words, which leads to Hezekiah's words of faith, God's words of promise, and then God's action. So we've got action sandwiching in a bunch of, a bunch of words. Assyria's action, right? We just read some of it. What, what have they already done? 
They've already decimated all these cities. They're creating this fear. They have like actual action to back up the words they're about to say in verses 1 and 2. But then they come, and I would call these empty words, because having this, uh, having this army of 200,000 to back him up, the Rabshakeh comes to the place, to the wall, and speaks in the common tongue, and he trash talks. Look what he says in verse 5. Do you think he's standing here, and there's some nobles, right? But there's a lot of the normal people just there that can hear him. And he says, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you, but if you, like he's, he, he is alluding to some of their history, to Israel's history at this point, saying Egypt's an unreliable ally. But then he moves on and says, if you say to me, well, we trust in the Lord our God. Well, isn't it he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? He, he's saying, like you, you uh, according to their standards, right, they worship their local gods in high places. He didn't, he didn't understand that God, the true God, said no. I don't, I don't do worship the way the surrounding pagan nations do. And so he alludes to that and says, you undermine your own, your own God. And, and, and he, alludes, he, alludes to, he alludes to the fact that, well, even if I, you see in the following verses, well, what if I give you some horses and chariots? You don't even have men that are skilled enough to ride them. You guys are weak. Rabshakeh just trash talks. All the way down to verse 20 where he says, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. And we would say, them spite words, right? Because he's, he is challenging, he's challenging God. So Hezekiah moves on, and in, in, they hear this whole, this whole, uh, Spiel by the Rabshakeh, trash-talking their god, trash-talking Hezekiah, trash-talking their military prowess. And Hezekiah moves on, and he's like, actually, he's kind of right. The Rabshakeh is kind of right in most of those things. But I happen to know someone named Isaiah who talks with this god a lot. And so he goes to Isaiah. He said to Eliakim, verse 2, who is over the household and Shebna, the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of distress, disgrace. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, Lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah consults with God through Isaiah and says, did you hear what he just said about you? And so we have an irony of words. Chapter 37, verse 6. Thus says the Lord. It's almost like the writer is emphasizing the word of God in the way that it carries. Because just before this, 
when Rabshakeh had brought a message. He says in, uh, in verse 4 of chapter 36, Thus says the great king. Thus says the Lord. And over and over and over again, we see in scriptures, thus says the Lord. There, this isn't mere words, right? This is the same language as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, and God said. And this is the same language as, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. See, when God returns the word, it's not a mere trash talk. And so, in chapter 37, verse 16, Hezekiah has received a letter from Sennacherib saying, I'm coming for you. And, and Hezekiah lays this letter before God and says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of, earth, of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. He acknowledges God as the high God over all. He's not just a local deity who hangs out on the mountain. He who needs to be cajoled by high places. He's not just a local God who hangs in, around in the fields who needs to be cajoled with weird acts of worship so that you can get rain. He's not that kind of God at all. He's a personal God who is near, who also rules over everything. And he appeals to God in his character and in his nature. He appeals to God, God's honor as the high God, to be the only one who could possibly overcome Sennacherib. And how does God respond? Chapter 37, verses 22 and following give us the record of God's words of promise. God hears the prayer of Hezekiah. God returns what sounds like trash talk, but it's no mere trash talk. Talk. He rises in defense. And look what he says in verse, verse uh, 26. I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. God rules over all. Verse 31. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God promises that he will preserve the faithful. They're called the remnant. God promises a savior, verse 34. And he's not just talking about the temporal, local, situational problem. He's talking about his grand cosmic plan here. Verse 34. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, talking about Sennacherib. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. And then he alludes to David, for the sake of my servant David. What did he promise to David? That David would have the king who reigns forever come from his line. God has to protect Hezekiah and these people. He has to preserve a remnant because his own promise depends on it. But it's his promise of cosmic restoration, of, of the new kingdom and the new creation that God is alluding to here. God's words of promise. So, Assyrian action, Assyrian words, 
And it wasn't any mere, like, false action. It was real, right? But then, in their haughtiness and arrogance, they, they, they slander and uh, um, say obscene things about God. And so Hezekiah brings words of faith to God. God responds with words of promise. And then God's action. Do you remember how many soldiers I said they had? 200,000. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. He's done. 90% of his force is gone, right? But who is he going to go out and conquer? Like, like, and, and strangely enough, the Sennacherib prison just prism ends at I pent him up in his royal city. That's where it ends. There is no doubt historically about the fact that something occurred there that completely rendered Sennacherib's forces crippled and unable to carry out any more of those campaigns. Something happened. We know what it is. God fought for the sake of his own name and his own promise and preserved the remnant, his people. Was that event recorded in that writing that you mentioned at the start? No. I'm sure not. It stopped just before it. He he knew that people were gonna write, people were gonna were gonna know about the context of his writing, but he doesn't mention that he got spanked. So, all that to say, Yahweh is greater than Sennacherib, Right? So our question comes back to why does Isaiah include this story for a people who are so hard of hearing? Do you remember the promise to Isaiah six, uh, to Isaiah and Isaiah six? How many people were going to listen to him? Do you remember? Does anybody remember? None, right? Nobody was going to listen. So what's the point of this? Like, why have all these oracles that promise judgment and hope, but then this narrative about God's rescue, if nobody's going to care anyway. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but several weeks ago I, I preached on one of these uh, poetic sections that was alluding to this very event. Um, why do we have this narrative in here if it's not going to matter? Well, think about this. At the time that Isaiah is, is, is being put together in its final form, the people are actually facing Babylon and have been exiled at that point. By the time it finally comes to this, to, to when these stories are put together, along with these uh, proclamations and these oracles, the people who are receiving it are people who, for whom Assyria isn't the threat. And, and, the, and God, re, God refers to faithful Israel who are being taken into exile. See, sometimes we think of Israel as this big bunch of like idiots who didn't listen and got kicked out of the land and like we think of it in this corporate mass. But God has always talked about a, a faithful remnant. Do you remember the story of Elijah? When, does anybody remember this story? Where he had this massive revival almost and then Jezebel is coming after him to kill him, to say, hey, you know what you did to all of, all of uh, my prophets? Well, I'm going to do that to you. And he, he goes into this depression, and he, and he hides, and he runs to the mountain, right? 
And, and God comes to him in a still small voice and speaks to him where he is and says, guess what? There are 7,000 in the land who have not bowed knee to Baal. Now, the point is that this is theological record, not just chronology. So are those stories of those kings. Why isn't there a massive narrative about those 7,000 that were following, following God? Well, God in his wisdom and in his story is talking about a story that has a, an essential unity from creation to restoration. And in that story, some parts are important in the chronology dimension, and other parts are not. What was important about the 7,000 was that he mentioned it in relation to Elijah's, Elijah's faithfulness. And so there's not an awful lot talked about them, but we infer from it that there's actually this mass of people among unbelieving Israel that are believing. There, God always has true believers among these folks that are faithful. And so we can't look at those people, the faithful, as if the exile was punishment to them. It was not. It was purposeful. Okay? And so this is written so that those exiles might take a look at it. And, and, and Brueggemann, I, th I don't usually quote these guys, right? Because sometimes it gets to be mumbo-jumbo-y. Um, but I thought that this would be helpful when you look at scriptures generally, because scriptures have a point, right? Like, they are not just a historical record. They are theological historical record, meant to teach us about God and his story. So here we have what he is mentioning about this text. Whatever there is of historical grounding here has been totally reshaped and stylized as theological material. Now, don't read. That means it's untrue. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, it has been crafted as a story in such a way that it would make a theological point. Am I going in and out a lot? A little Should I bit. turn it off? Or are we okay? Just keep going. You're okay Probably. if okay. it's not bothering you too much. Okay. Well, if it gets too distracting, I'll just like turn the sound down maybe or something. Okay. Um, thanks, Todd. Thus, the text needs to be approached not as documentation, but at... And I would say primarily, okay? So don't hear me wrong. It's not that it's untrue. It's not untrue. But, it, but the point of it is not primarily documentation. The point is theological testimony, threat, and invitation, okay? So these folks are supposed to take the, the, the exiles, the faithful remnant of Israel who are exiled, are looking at this story, looking back on what God has done, and they're receiving Isaiah in its final form, and they're reading it, and what are they going to do with this? And I would say that these first, uh, these first readers and hearers of Isaiah would see that this is one among many what we call type scenes in the scriptures, where, where there is uh, an impossible threat and a massive astounding against all odds rescue. It happened in Exodus. It happened with Sihon and Og after the Exodus. Like over and over and over again, God peppers these temporal interactions to say, look what I'm doing behind the curtain way up here. I'm not absent. I'm not far away. Here's another example. And so for them, in their whole wave of, of stories of Exodus rescue, Sihon and Og rescue, rescue with David, 
uh, iteration after iteration after iteration, this would be another one that would say, look, when there was absolutely no hope, and God said, I'm still in control. 200,000 and a trash-talking rabshakeh? No problem. And so, here's how it works. Assyria, in the type, is just another one of those systems, I'm missing a word, sorry, system against God. An organization or a system against God, but still under the thumb of God's sovereignty. Jerusalem is a, is a foil for the new Jerusalem, the, the true people, the remnant, the faithful people of God, Hezekiah, a foil for the Holy Seed, the true king, who we would look to at some point or another to be faithful in worshiping God, faithful in obedience, faithful in appealing to the character of God, and thereby achieving rescue. And what they would take from this. And, 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 and he went on, the same commentator went on to say, this entire unit functions to summon Israel to faith in a circumstance that bespeaks doubt, timidity, and fear. Keep those in mind. Doubt, timidity, and fear. And so what the, Babylon, the people in Babylon will be looking at is, if Yahweh is greater than Sennacherib, then Yahweh is greater than every other. And there's something going on here. And, we, and, and generally, people will look at exile and consider that there are usually going to be three responses to it. Response number one is to assimilate. To just jump into the culture, reject your upbringing, and become one of the people. That's response number one. Response number two for exiles is to withdraw. To hold yourself up with a fortress mentality not be touched by the world, uh, not be touched by these pagans that were among, and just try to maintain your righteousness. But then number three, to stay true to your calling. What was the calling of the people of God from the beginning? But to be the priestly nation that went forward in showing what God was like and was attractive to the surrounding nations so that that scene that we see in Revelation of every nation, tribe, and tongue all worshiping Jesus together can become true. And so we get a window of this from Jeremiah. Then the word of the Lord came to me. And Jeremiah is another prophet uh, writing to the exiles, and this is what he commands about them and to them. The word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of Chaldeans. Does that sound like punishment? Are they in exile because they're being punished? Remember the character of God, okay? Just keep that in mind for a second. Because we often operate under this prosperity gospel notion as God's faithful people that we were primarily under his frown. No. Good faith. You're good faiths, guys. <laughs> I will regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Now, if you ask me, this sounds an awful lot like what was at the core of Eden before they fell. They walked with God. 
they knew him. And everything was shalom, right? This is how God has his eyes set on his people. Jeremiah goes on to say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. He doesn't... Okay. They have a strong tradition of, of worship and religious ritual that was beautiful, right? And so, don't hear me wrong here. Those are, those, are, those are wonderful and part of what it means to walk with God. But he's saying to them, this is what holiness looks like. Build a house and live in it. Plant a garden. This is how they were to be obedient to God in Babylon. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God sent them to be obedient to him by seeking the welfare of Babylon. And then you have people like Daniel, a city official, right? Who used his influence to create peace when there was a tyrant reigning. And who influenced that tyrant so that he became a believer. Isn't that awesome? I think it's awesome. Like, you're just supposed to, they're supposed to just go out there and infiltrate. They're supposed to seek the welfare, build houses, plant vineyards, love the people around you, love your neighbor. That's what they're supposed to do. I gotta wrap this up, right? So, the way to remain faithful now is to look back and look forward, right? The way to remain faithful now is to look back and look forward. We review God's record of rescue and remember his promise of restoration. So, I got a couple of questions. We don't have a lot of time, but we'll take them anyway. How does exile affect you? Does anyone ever feel like we're in exile? Do you know that the New Testament kind of refers to God's people primarily as if we were parallel to these faithful remnant people like Daniel who were in exile? It's a pretty big theme. How does exile affect you? Anyone want to share? Is this on? What are some ways that you feel the exile? a lot of times I view it as uh, like I have this citizenship of and I'm, I'm kind of like a dual citizen right? I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God but I'm also a citizen of this culture that we've built um, and like culture within culture as well and I see that the culture pushes certain agendas that everybody just says like just if you're a citizen of that culture, so you're supposed to go with it. And sometimes you have to remember, like, that's actually not my home city. Yeah. And I, I've been exiled from my home city in, in a way. <coughs> in that city, they didn't push that agenda. Yeah. So why would I push it now if I am, you know, if I truly believe that I am a citizen of the kingdom? 
so like there's a temptation to assimilate almost is what you're saying. That's good. Who's our, what's our actual nationality is another question, right? Anyone else want to answer this one? How does exile affect you? Fear of man. So as an exile and as a minority, the remnant as a minority. So that you know pushes my fear of man, their approval. Uh, you know, really helps in my fight of fear of man. I really think what will help them flourish. I don't always respond that way first because my tendency is what will they think of me? And that's my fear of man, my desire for their approval. But if I really serve the king of kings and help them flourish, I can have a much better real approval. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really good because it's neither the uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm supposed to. It's it's not the withdrawal mentality, right? It's the I'm supposed to seek the flourishing of this place, and hopefully we add to the number of exiles, right? Like like we help include people in this great story of restoration. Exile. Anyone else on? Oh, there we go. It's similar to what was already said, but I think Brent is about like, because I don't feel like I'm in exile. Like, I feel like that's the initial reaction. It's like, I don't know if it does affect me, which is, I guess, some of the problem where I think those, like the Israelites, they so assimilated into the culture where that was not home for them, where there wasn't the connection mm-hmm. at all to that. So sometimes I think then exile, it's like, not, I mean, I feel like this is home. I'm comfortable. I have my Outside of that is, yeah, I, I recognize that when I, you know, when I come up against cultural things, or I know, oh yeah, this is not my home. This is not where. This is this is not all that there is, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it's it, for me, it's like thinking, having to reflect a little bit more on that is how it doesn't really affect me, and how it really should hit. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure more people have I been given the space in that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. It's almost like he's encouraging a holy uncomfortability there. Where it's like uh, build these houses, but remember who you are, right? Let's go to the next one. Fear. Okay, so this is the what is your helm's deep? You know, like what fears? Because I think that this is what the temptation is: is to look at that horde of Assyrians or orcs or whatever, uh, and it just like obscures God's promises to us. We're, you know, Dad talked a little bit about fear of man, but we're, you know, we just want to like make it feel like it is. What is that for you? If anybody wants to share. Um, I often have conversations with my wife and with my coworkers about like just the broken system of education. scares me because I'm like, how is this supposed to be rescued? Like, how is God going to redeem this? Um, and I see these kids and I see, like, the path and trajectory that they're headed on. And I just, like, I just kind of feel as though the evil is overtaking and that there is not safety or remnant. So that's kind of my home's deep.
just think there's always a, a fear of failure, you know, where uh, for everybody, where uh, just, if you can't, we all have our own humanness, even though we are redeemed and, and bought with a price, we all have a humanness where we know we're imperfect and we know all our efforts are, are uh, can't be imperfect, and so it's just that fear of failure and fear that you can't overcome by ourselves sometimes so yeah and so sometimes it's just hard to start that journey when you know you can't yeah. you can't completely uh, succeed all the time you know yeah thank you I think uh, I identify with that a lot is anyone else so um, let's just briefly talk about this what about God's character? Do you maybe intellectually know, but struggle to grasp with your heart? Eric, you want to say Eric, preach next week. You always do this to me. Um, but it's kind of like a reverse deduction. But I guess uh, when you were talking about thus saith the Lord and that same voice is like Elohim, the God, the creator God. And when I see my broken education system that I'm part of, and I'm like, how is this going to be fixed? I know that he created the world, but do I believe that that same power is going to restore the world? Um, So that's what, that's the thing that I struggle with. Intellectually, I know that God is good, but the depth of his goodness and the complexity of his goodness is something I really struggle to grasp because I see brokenness around me. I see the brokenness in my own home. I see the brokenness in my own heart. And I think, how can this come out to be good? Um, But there's a depth and a beauty to God's goodness where even in the terrible times, he is working out his, his beautiful plan. Um, so it's something that I know. I know God is good. I know He is great. But grabbing a hold of that and realizing that even when I'm struggling to um, tell my son for the fifteenth time in twenty minutes um, that God is good, I struggle with it because uh, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. So I struggle with that no to feel. Um, I'm going to move on to the next one here. This is just one for, I think, all of us to just kind of consider and think about. Because, yeah, so what are you hesitant about when it comes to loving God and your neighbor? So kind of in the same flow of these other questions. Um, And which is why we need some good news, right? The, The way to remain faithful now is to look back and look forward. Thank you all for sharing your struggles. And this is uh, awesome because when we think of how Jesus is our hero and what a gospel-filled life looks like, we take the same deduction that that we are um, giving the Babylonians, right? If Yahweh is greater than Sennacherib, and if Yahweh is greater than all the kingdoms of the earth, where have we seen him 
communicating with the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we would say, the deduction is that Jesus, the incarnate Word, is greater than brokenness, corruption, and death. And when you think of all of the things that we just um, discussed, it's clear, right, that we too are a people of exile. We're refugees in a foreign country. We're affected by brokenness that has yet to be restored. And we need to carry faith in a sovereign God and his plan to restore all things in spite of the present exile. We do not, though, look merely back to an Assyrian redemption as great as that was. We look at a fresh one that has fresh empowering. And so the way to remain faithful now is to look back and look forward. We look back to Jesus' perfect life. When Mike, uh, Mike, when you were talking, Jesus is the one who was called to be perfect, not you or me. And he did it, right? He lived a perfect life of perfect righteousness so that he can awaken our hearts as, as he died his death on the cross and removed the penalty of sin and then rises from the dead, he now has power and authority to awaken our hearts to life in him that's based off of his perfection and is full of his spirit's empowering, right? Jesus' perfect life, Jesus' atoning death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension, which says, I am the, I'm that God who is over everything and who is going to come back and fully put it to right, gives us what we need to, to move forward without timidity in the middle of exile, to, to work for the good of our city, and to consider ourselves as people who God has delighted to dwell with and place his identity and authority in. Okay, so um, this is something that uh, we haven't done in a while. But it's something that, that helps us in this exercise on a daily basis to remember, to look back and look forward, right? We look back at the character of God. Who is God? in his character. How do the scriptures describe him? Here, what Hezekiah looked at was, God, you are the sovereign God over all the kingdoms of the earth. What has God done on the basic basis of his character? And for us, as people who are united to Jesus, most specifically in Jesus, we look at him. Because the scriptures say over and over that he is who we have seen. And if we want to know what God is like, we look at him. What has he done? For them, it was 185,000 out of the 200,000, problem eliminated. You guys are safe. But for us, what do we look back on? We look back on Jesus who came into our world and into this exile alongside of us. He enters the brokenness. Then he unites us to himself and continues to walk with us. In all of his commands, did he say, and it's all up to you, or else it's gonna, the whole plan is going to go to whatever you want to fill in there. No, he said, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He gives us that confidence, right? Who am I as a result? We're safe. We're the well-loved sons and daughters of God. We're not failures. We are successes because we're united to Jesus. We already are. We are, we are the the agents of restoration, we are not the saviors. Do you see like who we are? 
And so how would you then live? And that's the question that you have to answer. And we together answer as the people of Sola Church, uh, who have been called to live in this place in this time. And one of the ways that we do look back and look forward is by this table every week. We were promised that as often as we take this, we are proclaiming his death till he comes. That's looking back and looking forward. We are proclaiming his death, that we're united to him, that all of our sins, the penalty has been removed, that the back of the curse has been broken, that that curse and, and exile is not the final reality, right? All of this occurred in Jesus' transaction at the cross. And in his resurrection, he's the first of many who we now look to to come back and finish the job. All right? So as you take the bread, remember, that is what nourishes us. And as you dip it in the cup, remember, he did this on our behalf for us, his people, his remnant, but also for the sake of the restoration of the whole world in which he's called us to live and embody.